Thanks, Adam. Good morning. I'm Steve Blummer. I'm the pastor of Family and Adults here at Hope Chapel, if you don't know who I am. Uh, one of the things you may or may not know about me is I grew up in a small, 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 small town in Iowa in the Midwest, population of about 400, but I think they were counting the cows. Uh, there's not really many big cities in Iowa. The capital of Des Moines is just around 200,000, which is the size of Worcester, but there's a lot of land in between the towns. Uh, put it in perspective, there's about half the population in Iowa as there is in Massachusetts, but 10 times the land mass. All right? Iowa is the, the largest producer of corn, soybeans, pork, and eggs in the United States. It's a lot of farmland there. One of the things that Iowa does not have are professional sport teams. None. There's a lot to choose from. You've got Kansas City, St. Louis, Chicago, uh, Minnesota, those things. And, uh, but having no professional sports team within the state is to my advantage because there's no loyalty. I can choose whoever is winning as my team. So in the mid-'80s, I was a Boston Celtics fan. And then I became a Chicago Bulls fan because Bird was out and this guy named Michael Jordan was in. A lot of the other sports weren't too well with the Cubs, the Rams, the Chiefs, the Royals, and so on forth. But uh, so as we moved here to Massachusetts in 2004, my, my wife and I and our son, she grew up here in Massachusetts. It was pretty easy for me to decide where my loyalty was. It was going to be Patriots, Red Sox, Celtics, Bruins, so forth. And of course, it helps having all those championships, Super Bowls, World Series, Stanley Cup, all happening since we moved here in 2004. So I say, you're welcome. <laughs> and if you don't watch any sports, I'm sure you're aware of this guy named Tom Brady. He's been given this name, GOAT, the greatest of all time. Because he, he likes to win and can win. He, he does well under pressure in the last minutes of the game. I think most of the wins by the Patriots come in the last few minutes of the game anyways. But uh, as Tom and the offense takes the, the ball at the end of the game, it gives the fans kind of a, a sense of relief that they've got the ball. Things are going to work out well. And if you've ever been on a winning team, and I've had my share of non-winning teams growing up in a small town in, in, in Iowa, but when you're on a winning team, you have this sense of relief that things are going to be great in the end, right? You, you can kind of relax a little bit. Every play isn't so stressful, and, and you have to have every play just right. Every point that you do make moving forward just expands the, your lead, and you can feel excited that you're going to be winning in the end. And I think this is what Jesus is communicating to his disciples, is that he's the greatest of all time. There's no need to worry as he begins to talk about his death and his resurrection. He's saying, I'm the greatest. Feel relaxed in a way. Get excited because there's victory in Christ. And we've spent several months in the book of Mark talking about all the accomplishments and challenges of Jesus' ministry. We're more than halfway through the book. A couple of weeks ago, we turned the, the, turned the corner, so to speak, as Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. 
And uh, he begins to talk about that more and more. He's heading down Jerusalem where it's all going to happen. And his disciples still are confused about what is really going to be happening. Jesus has been healing people of their diseases. He's raising the dead, giving sight to the blind. The paralyzed are walking. He creates bread out of basically nothing. He's walking on water. He's calming the seas. He is just amazing. And we remember last week that Jesus was talking to the crowds and disciples what following him really was going to look like. Because we remember that everybody was anticipating this earthly kingdom. And everything that Jesus was doing, it was, this kingdom was going to be unstoppable. It was going to be amazing. But they had no idea that his mission was about the sins of the world. In fact, it wasn't even until after his resurrection or really more in his ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit did they really put it all together. That was what God was trying to do, was to come and offer forgiveness of our sins. And yet every time Jesus talked about his death, it threw in a major catastrophe in their hopes for what they wanted in the future. But Jesus is trying to say, I'm winning, I'm the greatest, don't get all worried and upset about it. So we're going to continue in our story this morning in Mark chapter 9. You can grab the Bibles that's in the chairs in front of you. If you brought your own, that's great. Uh, The Bible in the pews, chairs, they're on 854. Mark chapter 9. We'll start in verse 2 where we left off last week and continue through verse 37. Mark 9, verse 2. After six days... Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transformed in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what he should say, since they were terrified." A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Then suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Then they began to question him. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores everything, he replied. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has really come. But they did to him whatever they wanted, just as it is written about him. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. All of a sudden, when the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. Then he said to them, What are you arguing with them about? Out of the crowd, one man answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation! How long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. 
So they brought him to him. When the spirit saw him, he immediately convulsed the boy. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Then Jesus said to him, If you can, everything is possible to the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was rapidly coming together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, streaking and convulsing him violently. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he went into a house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, where he was in the house. He asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes this one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. So it seems like three random events all tagged together this morning. There's the transfiguration and the explanation of who Elijah is. There's the casting out of the demon and the strengthening of the faith by this father's boy. And then there's this teaching about being great by serving. Now, when we study the Bible, we're often like, the disciples, and that were selfish, and we say, what does this mean for me? What is God trying to tell me? When in fact, the Bible is about God communicating His story. So when we read the Bible, we need to be asking, what is God saying about Himself, about His plan? What is it that we need to know about Him? Well, this first event of the transfiguration is quite an amazing one. Mark records that it's six days after Jesus was talking to the crowd about denying themselves, taking up the cross, and following him. Matthew says the same thing, six days. Luke says it's about eight days later. We find that the gospel writers sometimes aren't too concerned with the timing. But what we do know is that it's no less than six days. This is important when you think about how God came to reveal himself in the Old Testament. He came down in a cloud on a mountain to meet Moses to give him the commandments. And he told Moses, you can't come on the mountain until six days later. There's already tremendous symbolism that's going on here. Well, what is going on here? Why Moses? Why Elijah? I kind of see this like a player meeting up with his teammates or meeting up with his coach. And they're having this play, this timeout at the end of the game. What are we going to be doing here? They're making sure everybody's on the same page. And then it's kind of a 
a, a, a message to the, the opposing team that they have a play that they have prepared in advance to win the game. This is a direct fulfillment of the prophetic word in Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of the Old Testament. It says in verse 4 and 5, Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Everybody knew this prophecy. It's the last chapter, the last prophetic word of the Old Testament. They knew Elijah was going to come. In fact, the disciples brought it up later. What about Elijah? And Jesus says, Elijah did come. He's pointing to John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah, who was the great prophet proclaiming a message of repentance to a wicked generation. And Jesus seems to ask them a question. Oh, you know the scriptures, huh? You know about Elijah. What about where it says that the Savior is to be a suffering Savior? Well, we don't get their response. And it's either because they didn't really understand that part, or perhaps they were just looking for the answer for the question that they had. Have you ever had a conversation with someone And maybe you asked a question, but you're only listening for the answer that you're looking for. Or you know someone's talking to you and they're not really listening to you. They're just waiting for you to say what they're looking for you to say. I think that's maybe what this is. They had a question. Jesus answered it. They didn't even pay attention at all to what else Jesus was trying to teach them. But this symbolism of Moses and Elijah goes way deeper than just this fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4. In fact, I'm going to kind of nerd out and geek out, and I hope that you kind of join me with this in this journey, because here's both Moses and Elijah had met God on mountaintops, doing great things for God on mountaintops. Moses talked with God as he received the commandments from God in the cloud, and Moses represents the Old Testament law. He was given the law that required this sacrificial system to live a holy and righteous life before God. There was all of these rules and how to be clean before God. And here's Jesus standing with Moses, symbolizing that Jesus was going to be the perfect sacrifice. A way for people to live a holy and righteous life before God. A way to be clean before God. Elijah represented the prophets as this great prophet who stood up for God against the prophets of Baal on a mountaintop. And God would send down this pillar of fire as he would burn up this waterlogged sacrifice as all day long the prophets of Baal were trying to give evidence of their God's existence. It's quite an amazing story. There's, there's times where Elijah would mock the prophets of Baal. Where's your God? Where is he? Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Elijah knew that their God was not a God. And here's Jesus standing with Elijah, symbolizing Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophets who continually pointed to repentance and to follow the one true God with all of their heart, not just with their lip service. Because forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ is by faith. Believing that Jesus Christ really died on the cross for your sins, rose again three days later, and ascended into heaven. It's not about our works. It's by faith. 
And here's Moses and Elijah representing the entire Old Testament, and Jesus is hanging out with them saying, I'm fulfilling the Old Testament, and I'm starting something new. Elijah had another mountaintop experience after he had this amazing experience with God, this spiritual high. He had this emotional crash. And that's often what I would call the Elijah syndrome, is we have these spiritual highs at a, at a camp or a retreat or a getaway. We're, we're on fire for God, and then we can crash suddenly as the, the Satan and his, his just spiritual world attacks us. Someone this week said, you know, when you want to step out for God, you need to watch out. And that's what Elijah was going through. And God was meeting him again on this mountaintop experience. There was this whirlwind, this wind, this mighty earthquake and this fire. And God was not in those. But then there was a still small whisper. And Elijah talked with God. And God was encouraging Elijah through his compassion and his gentle spirit. See, with Moses, there was this shaking and this this display of his holiness. And then with Moses, there was this gentle spirit of his love. And Jesus is hanging out with both of them saying, it's all about God's holiness and it's also about his love. And I'm putting it all together. And I think it's even more fascinating as we learn about what these three guys were talking about. In Mark, we don't get what they're talking about, but in Luke, it says that they're talking about his death, or the word there is his departure. All right, so Moses was helping deliver the Israelites out of Egypt in their great departure, the great exodus, as God was redeeming his people, rescuing his people from slavery. And here's Jesus who is going to be delivering his people from the slavery of sin. Elijah is known for the prophet who, who did not die, but who was carried away into the heaven on a chariot of fire with horses of fire in this whirlwind. In the book of Job, God comes in a whirlwind. So God was in these guys, helping them in this deliverance. And here's Jesus, who is going to ascend into heaven later after his resurrection on a cloud. The cloud was a manifestation of God in the Old Testament. God appeared on the mountain to Moses in a cloud. He guided his people in the wilderness in a pillar of cloud. He came into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in a cloud. And here's Jesus ascending up into heaven on a cloud. Every detail about Jesus is saying, He is God. He's not just hanging out with the greats saying, oh, I want to learn what you did. What did you do so I can learn from your playbook? He's saying, I'm taking all that you guys did and I'm topping it because I'm the greatest of all time. It's going to be amazing. And so the play that Jesus has in store is fulfilling the Old Testament law and the prophets, the law to cover our sins and the prophet as a plea to follow God with our hearts. The transfiguration is not just a random event that happens to display Jesus' glory. Peter, James, and John, they didn't really fully grasp what was going on here, and they just started saying things to to try to fill in some silence. And and we do this all the time. He's saying, hey, let us make some tents. Let us make some tabernacles. Can can we accommodate you? Can we give you a personal suite? What, What can we do for you? They were trying to be hospitable in the presence of great saints, but what they really needed to do was just be quiet. God appears in the cloud and says, listen, 
to him. And that's what we need to do. Sometimes we're so busy trying to do things for God when we just need to listen and be in awe of what God is doing. Well, they moved to this event of a father who's bringing his demon-possessed son to the disciples, and they weren't able to drive out the demon. Jesus doesn't seem too happy about the situation. He calls them an unbelieving generation. He's calling the father and his disciples out. In Mark chapter 6, we saw that Jesus was unable to do any miracles in his own hometown because of their unbelief. And I don't think that's just because Jesus was unwilling to do any miracles because of their unbelief, but in the Greek, the word is unable, not having the power or ability to do so. Faith is such a key, important factor in God working. Jesus knows what he can do, but he's saying, do you? Do you believe? Do you trust? The boy's father, he seems to have this doubt as he approaches Jesus. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus is saying, if? (laughs) If you can, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? If I can? Oh, anything's possible For the one who believes, do you believe? And the Father proclaims one of the greatest responses, and I think that's our response mostly, is, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. I I believe, but I've got some doubts, some some questions, some some ifs. I, I don't want to get my hopes up only to have them come crashing down again. You know, this has been happening for such a long time. Things are out of control. I don't really know what you can do. I've I've tried to have so many people help, but they haven't been able to do anything. I don't know if this is going to be anything different, God. The Father is how most of us just have our faith today. We believe, we want to believe, but there's these questions, these doubts, these, these ifs. And Jesus is okay with our questions, our doubts, and our ifs. He goes and rebukes the demon. There's this crazy display of being out of control, and it seems like the situation has gone to worse. What did you do, Jesus? Now the boy's laying on the floor. He's dead. Jesus just takes the boy by the hand and raises him up. It's such an amazing event for us to think through. We just read through it. It's a story. Jesus did something great again. We've seen him do great things before. Eh. No, imagine this situation. This what situation looked hopeless, but Jesus intervenes. And raising the dead was not a new thing for Jesus. There's nothing new for Jesus. Your situation is nothing new for him. He's seen it before. On two other occasions, we've seen Jesus raise someone from the dead. The first one was the only son of a widow. They were walking by this funeral, saw this situation, and Jesus raises up the only son of a widow. Now, it's ironic that Jesus is the one and only son of God. And it says he had compassion on her. There's a reason. The second time, there was a 12-year-old daughter who was from one of the religious leaders, and he raises her from the dead. Ironically, Jesus was 12 years old when he was in the temple challenging the teachers. 
talking for the first time that he was about his father's business. I don't think that these situations are random. Jesus is talking about his death or resurrection, and he uses this as a visual illustration because they weren't understanding his words. Jesus is going to lie on the cross. He's going to be dead. Things are going to look like they're out of control. Things are going to look like they're worse. It's going to look like evil has won a major battle. He's going to lie in the tomb. He's going to be dead. But the story doesn't end that way. The situation has not gone from bad to worse. Jesus is going to rise up. He's referring to his death, his resurrection. He's telling them in plain language. He's telling them in visual illustrations. He's telling them, have faith. Relax. It may look like evil wins, but they don't. Jesus is. He's the greatest of all time. But what is the disciples' focus? It's always self-centered. They go back to the house and they say, why couldn't we do that, Jesus? They're not amazed at what Jesus could do. They're, They're saying, why couldn't we do that? We used to be able to do that. Why can't we do that anymore? Jesus says it's because this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. It's interesting that the book of Matthew says that it was because of their little faith. Jesus talks to them about if they had a faith the size of a mustard seed, they can move mountains, they can do wonderful things. Jesus is bringing the hammer down on them. He's saying, if you had faith as small as a tiniest seed, you could do amazing things, but you don't even have that. Your faith is like non-existent. So then the team walks down the road. Their leg, uh, tail is between their legs. They're, they're embarrassed. They're ashamed. And Jesus tells them again about their death, his death and resurrection. Again, they don't understand, but they're too scared to ask. They've been really bad disciples. Jesus had to call Peter Satan. Uh, they didn't, couldn't cast out this demon. They've done it before. They're failures as disciples. They're they're messing up all the time. And they flow into this next event where Jesus has to deal with the disciples arguing with one another who's the greatest. I I can't even imagine what this conversation looked like, right? These are grown men arguing about who's the greatest. How does that even start? I don't know. I'm the greatest. Well, you're the greatest? No, you're not the greatest. Jesus picked me first. I was his first disciple. That means I'm the greatest. No, no, you're not the greatest. Uh, God gave us the nickname Sons of Thunder, right? We must be the greatest. And one may say, well, I'm the treasurer. Jesus gave me responsibility. He knows the rest of you guys can't do anything right, so he gave me the job of being treasurer. Peter, James, and John may say, oh, we're the greatest. We got to see Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop beat that. Whatever the conversation is, they're arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? And immediately, they know that they've done something stupid. Right? They sit there silently. They sit there silently. And Jesus knows that they're being extremely childish, so he takes a child, places it in their midst, and gives them another visual illustration. 
See, Jesus has been already challenging them in their self-centeredness the moment he started talking about his death. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, following me. It's going to be a hard but a hopeful road ahead. But we can't really look at them and say, these guys are just dumb. They're human. And I'm sure we would do the same thing. Think about it. You're walking around with Jesus month after month, year after year, and Jesus is doing these amazing miracles. People are walking, sight to the blind. He's walking on water. You're getting to be a part of that. Jesus sends you out. You're casting out demons. You're healing people. Things are great. You know that he's the Christ. The coming kingdom is here. What that means for your future is so amazing. In fact, later we're going to see that there was this other guy who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus, and they got all upset. Whoa, what's this guy doing? He's not one of us. Two of them come to Jesus and say, hey, when you sit on your throne, can we sit next to you? It was all about themselves. So self-centered. And Jesus is hes trying to reorient them to understand that you are human beings. You're regular men. There's nothing special about you. I didn't call you to be my disciples because you were doing great things for God. You weren't. You're on my team simply because I chose you. And that's what's really cool about God is God chooses us, not because we're qualified, but because we're willing to say, yeah, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? And God then qualifies us. He gives us the tool, the resources, the abilities to accomplish what he's calling us to do. Jesus gives them this response that nothing can come out except by prayer and fasting. And this is not a new formula because the situation is now more difficult. Praying and fasting is not a technique or a, a task to get the job done. Jesus isn't saying, you know what, guys, you messed up because you, you ruined it. You, you skipped a step. You're supposed to pray first, and then you can go and do this. Why don't you pray and then try it again? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you guys needed a fast, so while you're fasting, you're concentrating on God and you're getting the power from God and then you can do it. And you guys need to understand that in and of yourselves, you can do nothing. And the reason that you pray, the reason that you fast, is because you're going to the one who can do everything and anything. He calls them out on their little faith, not saying, well, it's just because you didn't believe in yourself. You know, if you would just believe that you can, tell yourself, you can do it, then you can do it. He's saying, no, you're, you have little faith because you're not relying on God. And perhaps they had too much confidence in that it was them and their ability as they had already been able to do this in the past. Jesus' response is that we needed to serve to be the greatest. He's over and over and over teaching them about humility. Humility. Put yourself in proper perspective. Jesus says they need to welcome in this child as one of them. And you remember that Peter, James, and John, they were so eager to welcome Moses and Elijah, they, they felt this privilege of being in the presence of saints. What can we do for you? And God is saying, will you act the same way with this child? He hasn't done anything important. He doesn't have anything that you can gain from them. There's no way that this child can pay you back for your service. Will you have that same attitude? 
Jesus is reminding them, you want to follow me, this is what it's like. It's not about living in a cushy palace here on earth. It'll be hard. And if you want to get in the game, if you want to be on my team, your response is to pray and to serve. Pray and serve. Climbing up the kingdom ranks is not about being the boss and telling people what to do. It's about serving people and welcoming them into our lives and into this community. If someone walks in these doors here on a Sunday morning and they've got position or power or money or connections and influence, that's great. But if they walk in and they don't have any money or connections or influence or power, that's great. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We should never judge anyone who ever walks in our church doors. We have no idea where they are in their spiritual relationship. We don't know what led them here. We just need to welcome them in, smile, talk to them, connect with them. There's some people coming in here, they, they come from other churches. Their church, they've been in church for a long time. Maybe they moved to the area, they're just looking for a new church. Sometimes people come in here from hurtful church situations. And they're checking out church for one more time. But if it's not going to be a welcoming church, I'm out of here. There's other people who come in, they don't know anything about Jesus. They just want to find out, is God for real? And can God put all the pieces of my life back together? We have no idea what's going on when people walk in these doors. But I can tell you, that there's absolutely no person that walks in these doors who has it all together, including me. We don't have it all together. That's why we're here. That's why we're coming together, because we need each other. We know we need God most of all. That's why we're here. So if you look over and say, ah, that person, they seem like they got their life together. I know they don't. Because I know I don't. I want to say a couple things about serving and prayer as we kind of wrap up. We're going to talk more about serving, I'm sure, as we get into Jesus' direct conversation about serving in, in chapter 10. But when it comes to serving, Jesus is saying everybody needs to be involved. It's not about just Jesus welcoming people in. It's about everyone welcoming people in. Everybody's needed. And I'm not going to say things like, well, you know, you don't come to church looking to be served because honestly, we, all, we go to church to be served, to be fed, to be encouraged, to be strengthened. My family, when we came here seven years ago, it was such a relief to find a place where I could just go and be fed and strengthened and encouraged without having to serve right away. The opportunities were there and I could serve whenever I was ready. And I began to serve when I wasn't ready. But really, serving is a spiritual discipline to help me become more spiritually healthy. Serving is a spiritual discipline that helps you in your spiritual walk. So I encourage you to find a place to serve, whether that's here in a ministry that's existing or maybe it's outside of the church walls, to your neighbor, to, to, to your, some, in your community, whatever it may be, or it's something that doesn't even exist here. And really it's impossible for me and Neil and Ken and a few leaders to create all the ministry needs that we all would have. There's so many opportunities to reach people and to serve people that we can't just make happen. We have the same amount of time that you do. And honestly, when you look at the Bible, our job as pastors is not to do the work of the ministry. We're to teach you, the people, the saints, to do the work of the ministry. 
man, there's so many things that I would love to see happen, like a children with disabilities ministry, an addiction and recovery ministry, a mental health support group, a foster and adoption resource team, a parent night out ministry, a a senior and single fellowship group, a a team that organizes multiple global trips a year, and so on. I've got my list, and I'm sure you've got your list. And I would say that if you look at this church and say, you know what, Uh, this church would do well with an XYZ ministry, then I'm thinking that maybe if God's revealing it to you, he's wanting you to do it. But maybe if you don't feel called to do XYZ, but you feel like XYZ should happen, then I would say come talk to me, come talk to Neil and the staff, talk about your vision for XYZ, and then say, where can I help in A, B, and C? I want to see X, Y, Z happen, but I, I don't feel called to that, but I want to do A, B, C so that those people who are serving here, they can be released to come over here and do X, Y, Z. Does that make sense? The more that all of us are involved, the more that we can do for God. All of us are called to do this. Now, when it comes to prayer, it's important that we are a praying church. Jesus is telling his disciples, stop thinking about how you could do things. Get on your knees and pray. Church, we got to get on our knees and we got to pray more. We got to pray more in our spiritual life at home. We got to pray more in our life groups, in our communities. Pray as a family. There's a small group of people who come here during the week and pray in the morning. You could join them and pray. If you want God to move, we got to pray and we got to let others pray with us. Each week on their connection card, you can write a prayer request and drop it in the offering plate. And then staff, elders, deacons, and a prayer team, we pray over those every week. I've been on staff for about six years, and I can pretty much tell you how many and which ones are going to ask for prayer. And I'm grateful for those who ask us to pray every week for what's going on in your life. Never stop doing that. But I begin to wonder, why don't more people ask the church to pray? We need to be a praying church and ask people to come alongside us and pray with us. Because there's power in prayer. It's not on our own doing. It's only with God. And I know some of you, you don't want to let people know what's really going on in your life. You're not going to put all your junk out there. And I understand that. It's a confidential prayer. We don't share your prayer requests. I'm not asking you to kind of lay it all out and give us all the details on that piece of paper. Sometimes we'll call you up and see if there's a way that we can come alongside you and support you. But a lot of times we just pray. And maybe we should be better at even letting you know that we do pray, but I'm telling you, we do pray. I'm really encouraging you just to embrace that prayer is important and to call all of us to this ministry of praying for one another. Because God is saying, Jesus in each of these events is saying, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. There is victory at the end. Don't feel defeated. Get excited. Humble yourself. Trust in me. Pray and serve. 
Because I already won. And that's our challenge. So let's pray. Oh God, we, we can be like the disciples so many times just being off track. Not understanding what you are doing, what you are doing now. You are calling us to be a part of your team, to get in the game. And to get in the game is not to be busy doing busy stuff. We are to serve. We are to welcome people in here. And we are to pray. And that's a huge challenge. On top of the challenge of last week of just denying ourselves and taking up the cross and to following you each and every moment. So God, like the Father's boy, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Help us believe in those times where we doubt and we have questions and we have what-ifs. Thank you for, for putting up with us, showing us and teaching us how to live. God, may we really truly embrace your glory and all that you have done to give us the boldness and the confidence and the courage to tell other people about the good news of you. In Jesus' name, amen.